0: All right, everybody, uh, welcome to the podcast today um, called To Hell and Back. And this is, uh, what is this? It's Wednesday, May 2nd, 2018, and the time is 4 o'clock Eastern Time, as usual. And uh, of course, this podcast will also be posted uh, on my website, charlieswenson.com. and archived within a usually within a couple days. So I have a couple of announcements before we start with um, our guest today, Melanie Harned um, The first announcement is uh, I just learned I've been I've been receiving some communications from people that some of the podcasts have not been available or accessible. They haven't been working. So uh, the guy who helps us with the technology, both in websites as well as this program. Um, just let me know that it's fixed. So if you do want to check out any previous podcasts, in particular, I was getting a couple, some requests that people weren't able to access the one with the, the the three actually with Cedar Coons, the conversation I had with her. So if you're if you're you you now could look back if you're one of those people that's wanting to know, we'll go back to those podcasts. Um, second announcement is about a future conversation slash interview whatever you call what I do when people join me on this show um, something in between those two things I think um, and this is somebody that Melanie uh, Harned uh, directed uh, towards me um, it's a woman a, a DBT therapist that works with Melanie as I think a, a student and uh, and who underwent a Uh, catastrophically tragic event seven months ago in that her only child who was a healthy two-year-old died in the middle of the night uh, with no uh, warning signals and uh, like sudden infant death syndrome it was sort of sudden toddler death syndrome just a disaster and what I've learned uh, is that she has been extraordinary in the work that she's done to stay afloat and to cope with this kind of loss, um, using everything she could, mindfulness, practices, DBT skills, and more in the process, uh, and has found a way to reach out to the world to try to make meaning out of what's happened to her. She's going to talk with us um, for uh, two weeks in a row, and I'll just let you know now when that is. It's May 30th. Uh, wednesday may 30th and wednesday june 6th and um she's just faced this with uh, with the kind of courage that we can all learn from and be inspired by i think from what i've heard so far and we'll be we'll be getting into what the story was and what she's been doing since then and how it is she's trying to create meaning out of this terrible thing that happened to her um now um Yeah, no other announcements. Uh, Here we go. Good. Um, I'm going to be talking with um, Melanie Harned. Melanie's on the phone now. Hi, Melanie. Hi, Charlie. Um, And um, so I want to tell you um, something about her and why she is on. Um, I'm going to be uh, unusually formal for just a minute because I'm going to read something about her. That's uh, I don't usually do these kind of introductions, but I thought you guys some some of you will know who she is very well, and others not at all, so, and everything in between. So I'll just tell you first the, the formal credentials. Uh, Melanie's a PhD psychologist um, and uh, a research scientist in the Department of Psychology at the University of Washington, where she's the research director of Marsha Linehan's uh, behavioral research and therapy clinics. Um, She's the developer of DBT prolonged exposure treatment uh, for PTSD and has received uh, several grants from NIMH to develop and evaluate this approach to treating PTSD in high-risk and multi-diagnostic individuals. She's received multiple NIH-funded grants to develop and evaluate technology-based methods for disseminating and implementing evidence-based treatments in clinical practice um, she's been, for many years, a co-investigator on Marsha Linehan's NIH-funded research to evaluate DBT in diverse client populations, um, and she's, uh, she provides training and consultation uh, in the U.S. and internationally in DBT and in DBT for prolonged, with prolonged exposure, has published a lot. Uh, you can actually look those up. Um, in various ways like going to ResearchGate or you could go to I uh, probably Linahan.org, and also she has a, a website. Um, oh shoot, Melanie, it's dbtpe.org? Yeah, that's right. Is that exactly right? Okay, dbtpe.org to learn more about her treatment um, and uh, the support for that and other links. So um, make sure you tune into that. And... Um, and more personally, um, I was, uh, as, as Melanie's heard this story, in fact, she was part of the story because I met her in Maine when I was going to do a DBT training, a five-day DBT training. And uh, the people in Seattle who arranged these things at that time, because I used to work for this company, Behavioral Tech, uh, they paired her with me. I had never worked with her before. Uh, I had seen her present her research before and just thought, oh, my God, this woman is so smart, and I hope she has a sense of humor, um, because I can't get through five days of training uh, without humor. And so it turned out that um, though, though she, not though she was very smart, it's more dialectical. She's very smart and was very clear and a very good teacher and Uh, has quite a great sense of humor that was quite understated at the time. But once we were working together, it got more stated, I think. Um, And uh, it was really enjoyable. And so we've had a lot of contact over the years since then. She was also there, by the way, when I wrote my first DBT song and sang it um, ever uh, because we were trying to repair for a disastrous beginning of that training because the company had not sent any materials and we were in a terrible location uh, with terrible coffee and almost no light and all these people there. So to try to repair it, I wrote a couple songs and so she's been in on that. (laughs) She was the victim of that. Um, And the other thing I want to say to introduce her a couple more things is for for these last 20 plus I don't know, I hate to say 30 plus, but it might be years, uh, training people in DBT. A question that has come up for decades has been but what do you do during stage two? And for those of you who don't know, stage two, uh, in a nutshell, means that in DBT, with people working with people who are really dysregulated emotionally and behaviorally and whose lives are, are really in bad shape and they're suffering a lot. Um, their um stage 1 is helping get life uh, more stabilized and in better control and learn a lot of skills and try to have a couple solid relationships at least including with the therapist so that one can move forward without having to be, have your life interrupted and disrupted and broken up all the time by problematic behaviors. And then stage two would be to cope with the suffering that remains, the suffering that probably drove it all in the first place, but it's still there, sometimes a lot of misery. And uh, there were ideas in Linehan's work about what to do with stage two. Um, and But if you read her rather extensive book, it, there's not too many clues about what exactly you would do, except she recommended you would do some kind of exposure treatment and probably she would recommend doing the exposure treatment called prolonged exposure that was developed by um, Edna Foa in Philadelphia. Um, But it was, it was definitely an area like a vacuum. It was an area of absence in terms of people knowing what techniques or how to integrate this into DBT, even if they did know prolonged exposure. And that's where Melanie stepped in. So when she starts talking, um, I'm going to ask her to tell, you know, how did she end up um, working on PTSD in stage two and developing a protocol-based treatment for that. So um, that's going to be part of what we talk about today. The other thing I want to say comes from my own, uh, oh gosh, my learning, I guess, from the teacher uh, and his writings and his recordings and so on, Thich Nhat Um, this concept that is in certain places in his writings and also was first alluded to or a long time ago by the Buddha, um, about how in our lives, um, we are endlessly getting tied up in knots or more precisely, <laughs> I guess, knots end up getting tied up in us, uh, based on, you know, harsh experiences, painful experiences, uh, what he would call mental formations Um, but the idea is that if you have a bad encounter with somebody that a very small knot gets tied in you um, if you don't immediately attend to it and if you do attend to it um, the sooner the better so that the knot doesn't become one of those really tight knots like it's in thread or fishing line sometimes it's almost impossible to untie and so you can untie it while it's still just in formation or or loose or easier to untie because if you don't untie it uh, another knot will form often in conjunction with that knot and more knots form and next thing you know uh, if you've really been through very bad circumstances you've got a very big knot or a set of interconnected knots and it's hard to untie them and so I just wanted to introduce that metaphor because I think it's a metaphor that works reasonably well to introduce us to, to the idea of p- treating PTSD as treating the thing that happens when you end up with a very big knot or several knots that are tied and interconnected, and you really uh, it's really hard to untie them by yourself. Um, and you really want to, and you know they're stuck in you, and you know they come up with painful emotions and, and really troubling thoughts and, and bad experiences, but you don't know how to get at it. So in looking at uh, this whole podcast series, but also with just the work that Melanie does, what I'm hoping we can do after we hear more about this treatment that she's developed and what are some of the basic ingredients of it, uh, and especially getting into next week, to to be able to extrapolate from that and start to say, you know, with everything that she has learned uh, about treating PTSD for the last 15 years in developing this model, um, what is it That we should do to be watching out for the formation of knots to be catching them early to be knowing when they happen to be untying them early because you know it's one thing to be traumatized by something in the moment it's another thing to end up with PTSD and and then if you do end up with the knots already tied how to endure that and then principles and ideas for how to untie that so that you can Do as much as you can yourself and get the help you need. So I just want to leave off there. It just was occurring to me that this really helps me understand what we're trying to do here, too, um, really in all kinds of ways. So let me directly say that uh, I'm going to ask Melanie to talk about um, her, uh, her own interest and how it developed in doing PTSD work, sort of where she was coming from. I'll give you one hint. She came from Vermont, but I don't think that's what I mean. Um, and then uh, after that, uh, sort of how did she get into the work of PTSD? And then how did she make the choices that she did or why did she make them and end up developing this particular kind of treatment? And then the second main thing we'll get into hopefully today will be like, what are what are the basic ingredients or the most important way to understand the essential ingredients or principles of action Of this treatment uh, DBT prolonged exposure okay and then next week we'll extrapolate from that into how we can learn from this model so Melanie could you start just by talking about what I was just saying kind of where you were coming from and you can make this as personal or professional as you want about kind of where you started and how you got into this um, from the beginning, and then we'll sort of follow the twists and turns of how you ended up doing what you're doing now.
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I just want to say thanks for inviting me to do this. I'm uh, excited to be here. Slightly, um, as you know, anxious to be here, which is also partly why I'm doing it. Um, sort of <laughs> using this as exposure for myself. And boy, that introduction for me was certainly exposure. And I sat through it. Um, but thank you for all that you said. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so I can talk a little bit about sort of how it is I ended up doing this work, um, without going into, you know, tons of boring details, hopefully, but, um, really it started, uh, in college
0: <laughs> where
1: I, um, as Charlie mentioned, grew up in Vermont, came from a place, um, that there was not a lot of talk about things like feminism and um, social justice kinds of issues. And I came to a college, Wesleyan University, that was very much focused on those things um, and quickly became sort of very interested in looking at the world in through sort of feminist lenses and thinking a lot about women's experiences and um, learning a lot and witnessing a lot sort of the experience of violence against women, gender-based trauma, um, and starting to get sort of my first um, clinical-like experiences, as much as you can have as an undergraduate-type person, with sort of working at rape crisis hotlines and um, volunteering and domestic violence shelters and mm-hmm. things like that. You too. Um, and really starting to um, sort of see a lot firsthand about the kinds of suffering that people experience and the impact it has on them. And at that point in my life, feeling totally incapable to do anything that felt remotely helpful, frankly, um, but doing my best to to be present and do what I could. And then I went on to graduate school and specifically sought um, a program where I could work with somebody who was doing research on violence against women and, and sort of looking at various types, like sexual assault and um, sexual harassment and dating violence and all this kind of stuff and sort of got into it really more from a research perspective of sort of what it is that tends to cause those things to happen um, socially, culturally, and sort of what is the impact it has on people who experience the, those kinds of trauma um, and got much sort of clearer sort of conceptual understanding of it all, um, but still not too much clinical experience. Um, I was trained initially to do standard prolonged exposure, um, adnophoas treatment in graduate school, but I think it was the kind of training that many of us uh, who go through graduate training get, which is that, you know, people who made it into our psychology training clinic, um, you know, they screened out people who were suicidal, who were self-harming, who had, you know, anything particularly severe going on, and so it's still a, a hard treatment in many ways, but it was um, an easier one to get people through um, without all the sort of added severity, complexity kinds of things going on.
0: Um, Milly, so I thought, Milly, I'd let me, Milly, let me ask you something. Yeah. Um The, um, and I'm not sure exactly how to ask this, but in your experiences, it was while you were at college, you were you worked at a a rape a hotline for crises mm-hmm. or something like that. Yep. Was that it? So you would be on the phone with people?
1: Yeah. And was um, carrying, it, was a a,
0: carrying a pager. Carrying a um, pager. And was that related to women in particular, or just that was a crisis program that you would, whoever was in a crisis, you would deal with?
1: Yeah, it was whoever, and it was um, primarily women were the ones who were calling in. <laughs> but certainly yeah. it was open to yeah. everyone.
0: And what, and, and you know, of all the things you could have turned to, um, What do you do you think there's anything that reached out to you from this kind of experience, this kind of work or through feminist kind of uh, way of thinking that, you know, there was something about your experience or just who you were or who you, you know, who you had come to be that when you look back on it makes it makes you really have been like that was the right thing for you, how you came to be the person who would really go into that. I mean, you could, the, the argument you could make is that anybody could go into this and it sounds compelling sure. and important, but
1: right. not everybody oh, no, no. does I mean, I do think, this. Sure. I think what really struck me, a um, couple of things. Um, one is how widespread trauma is um, mm. of all types, um, mm-hmm. how how common it is, and therefore, like, despite our best efforts on the prevention side, it's never going to be preventable entirely. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of think about sort mm-hmm. of the Zen principle in some ways, as you were talking about, you're not metaphor, but the idea that suffering is unavoidable. Um, mm-hmm. Trauma is unavoidable. There's always going to be trauma. Um, and so mm-hmm. what I really thought I could do and got interested in doing was, you know, assuming that many, many people are going to suffer trauma, how to help them recover from those experiences um, Mm -hmm. so they don't get stuck there forever and sort Mm -hmm. of seeing the possibility for growth, meaning recovery after these kinds of events that are Mm
0: -hmm.
1: so common and so unavoidable.
0: Working in that kind of setting really opened your eyes more to just how widespread this Mm -hmm. just goes on constantly, day and night. Yeah. Um yeah. That's it's I think it found the same thing in as in the Department of Mental Health here in Massachusetts. It it'd be when I would run incident review committees when I was a medical director in the Department of Mental Health and just every week it was it was like amazing number of traumatic events and I'd say the vast majority were against women. Um, and it really felt discouraging. So, you, but you you, di- you sort of charged into it. Um, and uh, did you consider anything else that you were really thinking of doing, or did this sort of grab you?
1: I was a dual study, a like German studies major, for a little stretch of time, and I couldn't quite mm. find a way to combine the two. I started to think about mm. doing my undergraduate thesis on. Kafka and the hunger artist and eating disorders, but it all didn't work out <laughs> too well together. So I stuck <laughs> with psychology. Mm-hmm. So no, nothing else, actually. I was mm-hmm. a pretty, um, linear here trajectory straight out of undergrad, straight into grad school well, to start getting this well. training.
0: So go ahead. I, I rudely interrupted you. I hope it isn't that rude, <laughs> but I definitely interrupted you. You were talking about, you know, having gone to where you could learn about, uh, Treatment uh, and and learning in graduate school about Edna Foa's work and so on. So when, could you pick up where? Yeah,
1: you can sure. Remember where you yeah,
0: were?
1: <laughs> the the main point was is I I started to get some treatment experience with prolonged exposure in graduate school, but um, mm. and felt like I knew what I was doing reasonably well, and then I left there for my internship um, at McLean Hospital, uh, and started suddenly. We, sort of put in the middle of a clinical population that was radically different than the people I had been able to work with in graduate school. Um, It was a partial hospital program. It was people who um, were, you know, either recently off of an inpatient stay or trying to avoid getting to that level of care, but who were quite um, severe and complex in a variety of ways. And um, all of a sudden, it was sort of like I can't do the kind of treatment I was trained to do. It's people say you're not it's not appropriate to try to do prolonged exposure with people who are this acute um, and often suicidal and self-harming and um, all of these problems. Um, and I was sort of left without any tricks um, to do <laughs> at that point. Uh, and that's when I first started to learn some about DBT um, and how to learn... And another treatment to, that can help people who are at that level of severity with all sorts of out-of-control behaviors and things like that. Um, and so I then spent some time really specializing in DBT and learning DBT as a postdoc as well. And and then sort of became determined to combine the two. You know, if you work for two seconds, really, with the population of people who need DBT, um, you're going to find that many of them have very significant trauma histories, um, as you were saying, Charlie, and many of Mm -hmm. them, you know, all of these, um, as we say in DBT, sort of stage one kinds of behaviors, suicide attempts and self-harm and just substance use and dissociation and all these kinds of um, -of out-of-control behaviors are very often being driven by trauma histories and um, PTSD as a part of that. Mm -hmm. Not always, but for many people. Um, Mm -hmm. And so sort of applied to work with Marsha Linehan um, as a postdoc, thinking, okay, I'm going to go to the source and I'm going to really make sure I know DBT, but also showed up um, to work with her very clearly out of the gate, saying we need to figure out stage two. We need to figure out stage two. Oh,
0: okay. um, we have
1: to get to the point where we are um, also treating the trauma and treating the sort of core misery that's driving a lot of these more, you know, flagrant problems at the beginning. Um, and so mm-hmm. that's what I started doing when I came originally out here to the University of Washington 14 years ago started um trying out some different approaches with
0: let me interrupt you again for a different reason there's there's some kind of noise on the phone at least as i hear unless it's coming from my own phone which i don't think it is so i don't know if somebody's listening and and i don't know if all the muting has gone on that's supposed to go on so any of you listening if you just be aware if there's some noise where you are um and if it isn't muted and i'm not the expert in how to do this. so please just uh, sort of try to try to keep any noise down that it, it does get into the middle of the podcast. Um, do, you, do you hear anything, Melanie?
1: Um, I do a little bit, some static is what bit. I'm hearing.
0: Yeah, some static, and then every once in a while I hear more. Okay. Mm-hmm. And now let me ask you, when you got out to Seattle and you start working with Marshall Linehan and you're interested in stage two from the get-go, and um, did you start to find patients right away or clients that themselves also were talking about wishing they could get treatment for their PTSD or their stage two? I mean, you were aware something was missing, but was that also true of your clients?
1: Um I don't. I wouldn't say that cli- the request for PTSD treatment is not a typical one, um, mm-hmm. and it, it wasn't when I started then either. So it's mm-hmm. it's pretty unusual in my experience um, for clients to kind of walk in the door saying, "I want to treat my PTSD." Um, right. Certainly, some people will, um, but most of the time, people don't. I think it's a combination of um, many people don't realize they have PTSD. Um, mm-hmm. sort of knowing what it is even, um, or if they do realize it, they think that it's not treatable mm-hmm. um, or they've gotten messages from different sources or providers over the years that they are not appropriate for PTSD treatment, um, they're mm-hmm. too severe to get it. So it's it's not typical right. that people ask for it. Right. Um, so it, it really is what's typical is that the therapist, um, frankly, has to sell the client on doing it, <laughs> um, yeah. suggest that it's needed, and really work to build their motivation mm-hmm. to be willing to do it.
0: Yeah, and you know, and around the same era, I'm sure what you're talking about. Without going into what years it was, I was probably already doing a ton of training and and training people who were already pretty experienced in DDT. And it would come up. I mean, it would be very hard for any of the therapists that I was training to sell people on it because they didn't know what it was. It mm-hmm. is. It was very hard to sell, except other than to sell. Hey, we need to talk about you know the kind of experiences you've had because. Um, you have PTSD, but, but people really weren't sure where to go with that unless they came walking in to their DBT treatment with another model like EMDR or cognitive processing therapy, or if they knew prolonged exposure. But even then, those models seemed to all develop without specific reference to people who had borderline personality disorder. So no one knew where to go. So what, what steps did you happen to take next to figure out what to do.
1: Yeah, um, so I'm a very uh, data-driven person in many ways, Um, and so one Mm -hmm. of the first things I did was really dig into Marsha's data of her, you know, years and years of having done randomized controlled trials um, of DBT and tried to first take a look at, you know, how is DBT doing in terms of its effects on PTSD and really Mm -hmm. just wanting to understand, is it already effectively treating PTSD or not? You know, is something else needed? Because we don't need to do something else if it's already working just fine. And so Mm -hmm. um, sort of starting from that and and learning pretty quickly that, um, well, it's usually about a third of people who get DBT as it's sort of typically been delivered will show, will get to a place sort of remission of PTSD where they no longer meet criteria for PTSD. Um, But that's a good amount lower than what you would expect from people who are getting an active PTSD treatment, where it's more like 50-60%. Um, mm-hmm. And so based on that original sort of look at some data, you know, we felt pretty sure that we we needed to work on improving DBT's effects on PTSD, mm-hmm. and so then mm-hmm. I just took it from there to start really trying to figure out, like, what are we going to do and how are we going to do this? and. Um, Right. You know, Marcia's original book had always made it clear that we should be doing exposure um, as the intervention of choice and you know, bringing in an exposure-based protocol um, to treat PTSD, which is how we landed on prolonged exposure um, as the basis for what we're doing.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I know from probably around that era, and I think I've told you this before, but Uh, that I was once sitting with Marsha at a a behavioral therapy conference and uh, watching a group of experts discuss exposure treatments uh, for anxiety disorders including PTSD and I remember her turning to me at some point and saying God we got we've really got to get into this we've got to get this and we've really and you know and I've set up this rule that you can never get into doing exposure treatment until you've gotten entirely out of stage one and she said i don't even know for sure if that's true um so you know she was wondering but obviously she couldn't do everything um yeah. at the same time <laughs> so um you were picking up that that area um and uh and finding out it sounds like from the data that uh, the results were not that great um for instance, as, as you know, the results of using DBT and tr- if you look at how well it's doing treating certain other AXIS-1 disorders like major depression or substance use, it's doing way better than that. Um, right. And so was sub- something about uh, PTSD that was being left. And it, it makes me think too, Melanie, of how many times Marsha over the years herself has has brought together data to say to people who are doing dbt look things don't get better unless you target them right Um, so you know whatever it was going to take to target ptsd um maybe it wasn't able to automatically happen while you're doing the rest of dbt yeah
1: i think you're exactly uh, right i mean i think the the fact that we didn't get as good outcomes as we might hope for with you know treating ptsd Mm -hmm. the way dbt has typically been delivered it, it is a problem of targeting people weren't trying to treat PTSD. And so, of course, um, it wasn't going to get better. And I think that it's totally understandable why people weren't trying to treat PTSD. For one, as you already said, this idea like it wasn't even clear what we were trying to sell that client on doing. Like what was it? What was the treatment um, for PTSD? And that wasn't clear um, for a long mm-hmm. time. And so it obviously makes sense that people weren't doing it <laughs> for that reason yeah.
0: as well. No, it's always an awkward conversation if you're a therapist and and you say to somebody, so you have PTSD, don't you think you need it treated? And the patient says, yes, I need help for this. And so you say to the patient, so, uh, so why don't you do it? Right. And, you know, it's like the patient says, no, you're supposed to tell me what to do. And then you'd have to say, well, I'm not sure. I mean, and I think that went on for quite a while. It reminds me of the fact that when Marcia entered the field, or before she entered the field and she was facing the challenges that she faced when she went personally in her late teens, early 20s, and, and was figuring out herself how to get better with what she had that she figured out at some point that actually people didn't know what to do with those kind of dis- with disorders that we're talking about. And, uh, and then she, that sort of put her on her course of I'm going to figure out how to get this done because nobody knows what to do so it is it's a compelling you know if it if it if it appeals personally it's a pretty compelling thing i mean you're in the middle of a lot of very smart people and you figure out there's a hole in the treatment somewhere that's really important and and you it was it must have been intellectually great for you to have the ability to do that I mean, you, there you were, right, with all of Linehan's stuff and smart people around you. Um, yeah,
1: absolutely. And or am I, I making think,
0: uh, am I painting a rosy color uh, <laughs> colored glass? <laughs> no, not at all. Um,
1: I was definitely uh, in a position where I could actually do this because of where I was and who was around me and all that kind of stuff. And I would
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, also highlight um, the role of our clients. Um, You know, when I went down the path of really trying to start developing this protocol in a sort of structured, systematic way and figuring out how to integrate it into DBT and Mm
0: -hmm. how to
1: integrate DBT into prolonged exposure and all of that, um, you know, we frankly didn't really know what we were doing um, at the beginning uh, and how it was Mm -hmm. all going to work. We had faith because I had smart people working with me and my team that we could figure it out. Um, mm-hmm. But we actually really needed our clients to help us in figuring that out. And so my very first study, we brought in 13 women. Um, they all had borderline personality disorder. They all had PTSD. They all were actively suicidal and self-harming, um, had many, many additional diagnoses on top of that, um, sort of a pretty... Um, severe, complex group of women, um, and they sort of started referring to themselves um, lovingly as the guinea pigs. Mm. Um, And Mm. they were totally on board with helping us figure this out um, oh my god were, I didn't and, know this
0: part of the story that's interesting and they were
1: incredibly thoughtful and helpful and giving feedback and helping us figure out sort of how to modify things that would work better for them and hmm. um, and that's continued every patient I treat I learn something new from um, and the courage that they have not only to do the treatment but to do a treatment that nobody had really actually done before with people like them and um be willing to work with us to figure out how to make it work.
0: Hmm. Oh, I love this part. This, this story could be several podcasts, this little part. This is so interesting. <laughs> I mean, it, it uh, reminds me of when I was uh, – a lot of years ago, I got the chance to consult uh, two or three times going to Colorado when when Robin McCann and Alyssa Ball and others were developing uh, DBT for forensic <laughs> males. uh, in Pueblo Colorado and uh, I remember one of the times that I went there I sat at a table where uh, a bunch of the a a bunch of the uh, inmates that were there uh, were sitting around with Robin and a couple other staff members as a committee going through the entire skills book revising it um, Mm -hmm. together And really figuring out because, you know, for that for that population in in that setting, you know, there's not there are a lot of skills that just don't make any sense at all, like taking a bubble bath to self soothe yourself (laughs) was not available um, in that setting and lots of other things. And so they were redoing it and they were sort of bringing together some principles, you might say, from um, skills packages that were developed by people who had been in prisons a thousand times. Um, about how to survive and so it's really kind of reminds me of that they they really helped you out Um,
1: absolutely they did Um, Mm. and continue to Mm. Mm.
0: So. so what so at this point you've you know begun to work with people you've got the idea of combining prolonged exposure which was created for a less complicated population would that be fair to say I mean, people with yeah. PTSD, but not with all of the other comorbid diagnoses and with suicidality.
1: Yeah, they so prolonged exposure. Um, is, they exclude people who have recently attempted suicide or had serious self harm mm-hmm. or are acutely suicidal, and mm-hmm. certain comorbid diagnoses um, are often excluded. And really, it's that PTSD is their is their primary problem. Is um, mm-hmm. kind of. It doesn't mean they don't have other problems or other comorbid problems, but they're not as severe as the PTSD typically.
0: So you were bringing together DBT for that kind of severe chronic complex disorder along with prolonged exposure as a mechanism for dealing with PTSD.
1: Right. Right. So the idea was that, you know, We agree that people who are actively suicidal and self-harming and have a lot of problems that are more severe than PTSD That it isn't appropriate to jump right into a PTSD treatment um, With those uh, people and instead we needed to but instead of just saying you can't do it We needed to provide them with a way to do it and a pathway to get there Um, And that's where DBT comes into play, uh, which is you know DBT is really used As a stabilizing treatment, um, at the beginning and sort of how to, uh, get people, you know, both safe enough to engage in a trauma-focused treatment so that they're not going to kill themselves if they do that, um, as well as, uh, you know, all the skills that are really critical to be able to make the most of a trauma-focused treatment and get the most benefit from it. Um, DBT Mm -hmm. has a ton of skills that we have integrated into this protocol, um, that clients rely on, like mindfulness um, and radical acceptance um, and being able to you know, experience an emotion uh, mm-hmm. without shutting it down. All those kinds of things are um, things that we teach clients through DBT beforehand um, to get them to a place where the, they're both safe and then able to do a trauma-focused treatment in a way where it's likely to be effective.
0: Right, right. You know, it reminds me of um, in doing DBT over the years it, and teaching skills, um, I I always looked forward to teaching the skill in one of the modules, the emotion regulation module on, on experiencing your emotions coming and going like a wave. And I think when I think of it now in this perspective, uh, one of the reasons I liked it was it was different than other things. And it was, it felt advanced. I mean, it felt like wow, if you're going to let your emotions come and go like a wave, you have to have already been doing some of these other things because otherwise it's just going to be too painful or just yeah. go over, it would get too intense and you couldn't do that. So I remember liking to teach that, and it would take extra time trying to teach that. But it, it's one of the examples of why maybe DBT had the uh, seeds in it of treating PTSD, but not all put together as right. a treatment. Um,
1: Absolutely. So There's so many principles that overlap.
0: Are there? Yeah? Yeah. Between um,
1: DBT and, and exposure-based treatments, absolutely. All of the sort of acceptance kinds of principles and the idea mm-hmm. that, you know, trying to avoid suffering only makes suffering worse. Um, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. you now that's sort of the sort of core part of doing an exposure-based treatment. Um, is being Mm -hmm. able to accept and experience the suffering so that it doesn't turn into this long-term problem. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes me think of, I mean, radical acceptance being one of the skills, and in the first manual from 1993, there wasn't that much said about how to do it, and it really got upgraded when the new manual came out in 2014 that really tells you a lot more about doing radical acceptance, and it's, and a lot more about how to do opposite action, which is basically exposure. So in a way, it mm-hmm. was it was coming along to develop those things uh, more within DBT. Um, so tell me what you... I, I want us to get to the point where you can now say, uh, and I want to distinguish this for anybody listening to the podcast, this is not a training mm-hmm. um, in doing this treatment. I mean, Mel- Melanie's been doing... Uh, at the moment, she's done, in the past, did some two-day trainings and she's done four-day trainings and she's compared outcomes between therapists who take two-day versus four-day trainings and find the four-day trainings are, are better. And uh, and I've attended the training myself. So if anybody is looking to actually get um, trained in this model, um, really go to her website, um, dbtpe.org. Cause I'm, it, it, do you list upcoming trainings there? I, I do, yeah. So, you know, but don't confuse this because that puts too much of a burden on a podcast to try to do that much. But I would like to ask you if you could begin to tell us, um, you know, about this treatment um, and, and you know, partly the logistics of it. But I, I think what's really interesting for the podcast when you think about what this is all for in this context is what is it do people that people need um, in, in in doing DBT and prolonged exposure and the ways they overlap that really can make a difference, I mean, from what you've seen. And I know you've been excited at times. I remember seeing an email from you once uh, to the DBT listserv or to something that I read. <laughs> God knows, not to my local bank, I know that, but somewhere out there in the internet you wrote something about after you had treated a whole bunch of people, it seems like in a on a certain week or a certain day and you wrote, and it was so moving what you wrote you said i just I just changed the lives of a certain number of people or something like that um, so I wonder if you could reflect some on what do you what do you think does change people's lives who have p t s d and these complicated problems
1: yeah, um that's a big question i guess the I the that's <laughs> totally fine though the main thing i mean as a starting point, what I think I mostly want to convey is um that PTSD and the suffering caused by trauma that PTSD is part of, but there are other pieces of this too, is treatable. People don't have to suffer for a lifetime from these problems. Um, And at the same time, the treatment is really hard. Um, You know, it's sort of, we often hear people say things like the only way out is straight through the middle. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's, exactly true for trauma um Mm -hmm. and that you know trying to um get better from trauma by going around what happened doesn't usually Mm -hmm. work very well um and it's so it's a process of figuring out how to go right through the middle the hardest parts the Mm -hmm. most hellish moments um as the way to get out to the other side and when you can do that um the changes are enormous. Um, People not only don't have PTSD anymore at the end, um, but so many things tend to change for our clients who come in um, with the sort of stage one level of disorder at the beginning of DBT, you know, the reasons they wanted to be dead, the, you know, the things that drove them to self harm, um, a lot of those things aren't present anymore. They're not viewing the world in the same way. They're not viewing themselves in the same way. That's a big thing that really can change because trauma has a huge impact on people's um, beliefs about themselves. Mm -hmm. Almost everybody I work with um, as a result of trauma, often childhood trauma, you know, believes that they're bad and they're unlovable and there's something wrong with them and they're disgusting and all these kinds of just... You know, terrible ways of thinking about themselves that are caused and learned by experiences they've had. Um, mm-hmm. And if you can shift those ways that people think about themselves to having compassion and acceptance for themselves, that just changes everything.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. So. Well, let me um, ask you this then, and it gets right into this. Um, I don't know what direction you were going to go further, but we have the rest of today and then next time, too, to. Um, to cover a number of things but I was just thinking how many patients I've worked with that do feel those kind of terrible things about themselves and have those thoughts about themselves and then if you start working on that by talking about it um, and it is quite possible I mean people are people are by and large really smart and so when you present that you know that maybe this is not accurate that you're a bad person you're an ugly person you're a disgusting person or all of these things that people think about themselves um they they routinely will answer you know intellectually i get it and i i know what you mean and i think about that but it but i still feel it and it doesn't change sure so that's where i think um you know that and i'm not that that's in itself uh, an example of cognitive therapy not quite touching these but just sort of like talking about it rather than as you're putting going through it which I am wanting you to tell us about now but what is it that makes these uh, makes it hopeful makes it possible for these things to change
1: yeah well what I'm thinking might be helpful is to talk a little bit for a minute about like what it is that keeps PTSD and the suffering that goes along with it going because yeah, it sort of good. gives us a framework then for um, what we do to interrupt that um, so that it will stop. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so in general, there's sort of two things. Once people experience a traumatic, a traumatic event or many events, most of the people I work with, um, it's totally normal after a trauma for people to experience things immediately that's, that look like PTSD, you know, nightmares and a lot of, you know, the thoughts about what happened to them, the trauma coming into their head all the time and not being able to sleep well and being kind of jumpy and, um, you know, wanting to avoid going to places that remind them of it, all that kind of stuff. Those are sort of PTSD symptoms that almost everybody has um, uh-huh. after an, a traumatic event. It's just a normative reaction to trauma. Um, and the people who kind of get stuck there where that's the their experience, you know, long after the trauma has passed... Um, there's sort of two main things that kind of keep that going once it's started by a trauma. Um, the main thing that we think about is avoidance. So the catchphrase I like to use is, you know, we we have to help people avoid avoiding, essentially, um, because we know that avoidance keeps things going. And there's, you know, sort of certain ty- types of things that people typically start avoiding with PTSD. Um, very often people avoid, their own thoughts and their own memories, you know, sort of thinking about the trauma, you know, a a memory of the trauma will pop into their minds and they'll right away try to distract themselves, you know, push it out of their minds, um, however they can get it out of their minds, you know, which for the clients we work with are very often things like self-harm or drugs or dissociation. Those all work to um, escape your own internal experience of uh, trauma mm-hmm. memories, for example. So avoidance of your own thoughts and memories and then avoiding situations that um, are somehow related to the trauma in some way, you know, mm-hmm. things that have mm-hmm. reminders of the trauma in it or similar in some way or things they think are likely to be dangerous. Um And this kind of avoidance just kind of takes over totally understandably because avoidance works. It works as a short-term strategy. So if you're afraid of something and it's next to you and you walk away from it, you're going to be less afraid pretty quickly. Um, So it it absolutely has this short-term effect of reducing fear and anxiety and other emotions quite rapidly. Mm -hmm. Um, And the problem is, is that it, uh, only works in the short term and it keeps these emotions going in the long term. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that is sort of, so I said there were two things. One is avoidance that kind of keeps things going. And, and the other is there's certain kinds of beliefs that people tend to form um, who've experienced trauma. Um, I sort of got into a little bit, uh, one type of them this kind of negative beliefs about themselves, thinking they're bad and, you know, terrible mm-hmm. people and all that kind of stuff and incompetent. Um, you know, often people uh experience trauma and then blame themselves for it. So self-blame is super common as a typical kind of belief that people have after trauma, that somehow they did something to cause it to happen or mm-hmm. they could have done something different and it would have prevented it or, or things like that. Um, right. And other kinds of beliefs too, beliefs about things being dangerous that are objectively actually safe things. Um, Mm-hmm. And what happens is people get kind of trapped in this cycle where um, something shows up that makes them afraid or ashamed or guilty, and so they respond pretty quickly with avoidance um, as a way to, you know, reduce that emotion. Um, but by avoiding, what, what happens is they end up sort of not getting information back that's going to correct those beliefs about what they're predicting is going to happen so mm-hmm. you know a super basic example if I am afraid of spiders and every time I see one I run out of the room I'm never going to have a chance to actually learn that if I sit there in the room next to the spider that mm-hmm. it's not dangerous it's not gonna hurt me um, mm-hmm. bad things aren't mm-hmm. gonna happen
0: yeah, um, and you know just to, I'm just thinking you're, you're making this so clear um, that a, a few years ago, I worked with somebody with prolonged exposure at that time, though we didn't have your protocol yet, so I tried to do my own putting together of DBT with prolonged exposure, and I think it was somewhat helpful. And It was a, a woman who had been um, uh, attacked by her best friend, who was a male, um, a total shock to her one night after they had been... Doing a lot together working together over the years really buddies and and uh, he uh, he sexually attacked her and after that um, things went just little by little just what you're describing she began to be uh, frightened about uh, she just couldn't get rid of those feelings that she was it was going to happen again anytime and she had to be on the lookout even though he was far away but she thought he would show up anytime so she got locks mm-hmm. for her apartment which is in a pretty safe town here in Northampton and and she got uh, other things to do uh, that, that would keep her away from things she eventually stopped her work and things went like that and here's the thing that you're describing so perfectly is that she did a she she did something uh, on, in the course of this happening she held herself responsible for not noticing that she was in danger and there was a certain specific thing that she thought she should have picked up on and she had always felt that she was a courageous strong woman who could identify signs of danger anywhere including at singles bars and stuff like that and all of a sudden she's uh, feeling like she no longer has that. It's stripped her of having that competence, but she no longer went anywhere that would make it possible for her to learn that actually she is pretty good at that. I mean, she just lost it. It's like an, like an atrophied. She had took her quite a long time to rebuild a sense that she could survive. Okay. In the world. Um, okay. I just want to tell you in telling this, that what I've done was a kind of a composite of, two or three people that I've worked with over the years. And so I want to make sure that people understand there's no particular identifiable person that this would relate to. That can make people nervous listening to something like this.
1: Yeah. And that's a really typical kind of story in a lot of ways. And I always think about it as people's lives just get smaller and smaller and smaller, um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because of anxiety and because of, um, feeling like avoidance is the only way to um mm-hmm. cope. And right. so stopping going places and right. all that kind of stuff is very typical. And um and essentially you know, the sort of core of the treatment for it is to break that cycle. Um, which means to stop avoiding. Um, and instead to approach things that are safe to approach. We're never going to do it with risky things, but Mm -hmm. approaching your own thoughts and memories of what happened to you. Um, approaching whatever the situations are that you have been avoiding that are actually safe situations. Um, like going to bars in your example for, you know, um, or Mm -hmm. not having five locks on your door, you know, that kind of thing. Um, Mm -hmm. and what happens in that process is, you know, people get some new learning. They discover I can go to a bar and not be raped. Um, or mm-hmm. I can, you know, go to sleep at night without um, checking my locks five times and nobody's going to break in. Um, mm-hmm. I'm safer in my house than I thought I was. Um, and then, you know, the fear will come down and the other emotions too. Um But it's sort of we have to first interrupt the avoidance You know,
0: and that's, you know, we're going to be stopping in a couple of minutes. I'm realizing that's where we'll pick up next time because I can just imagine people listening to this now or in the future uh, who have had PTSD or, or who do have PTSD. And I'm just thinking of people I've worked with and how they would say at a time like this, like, theoretically, this sounds really good, but I can't possibly do without those locks, and I can't possibly re enter these situations that I'm afraid of it'll just you know so i'm i'm uh, i'm really going to want to ask you uh, partly because i just think one of the valuable things about your treatment is that it does provide hope for people that maybe thought there isn't and 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 though this podcast can't be a treatment i want it i want people to be able to hear how is it you get from point a to point b where point b is you're approaching these places that people have been avoiding and you're giving up some of those behaviors that have been sort of safety behaviors. So, uh,
1: Yeah, I think it's hope and I think it's a ton of courage. Um, Hmm. And I think it's sort of keeping in mind, you know, the sort of short-term pain, long-term gain kind of situation here Um, and making sure that the person doing the treatment and doing the exposure is in 100% control of what they're doing um yeah. it's up to up to you to decide what you're going to approach and how you're going to do it and when you're going to do it and um making sure that they understand why it's going to be worth it in the long run and that the beauty of this treatment is that it not only does it work it's shockingly effective uh exposure um but it works pretty quick and so yeah. it's really about getting over the initial totally understandable fear of starting to approach things and once you do that a couple of times you're going to see that it's, you're going to be already starting to feel less afraid and once you see that it's actually working in your own experience it gets easier to keep going um, hmm. into really hard things
0: yeah well um, this will bring us right up to the end and I just want to say in doing the in going through the process of your training um, that really struck me the most of, of everything uh, was that you that when possible you start out with the worst of the worst of the experiences or memories that people need to, to kind of think their way through and, and go through it emotionally and rather than starting with the easier ones um, you know that you're 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 going into the middle of the middle from the beginning once somebody's you know is ready to go yeah um, so look, Melanie, thank you relief so much. Fastest. Yeah. What? So we want to get the say?
1: most relief as fast as we can.
0: The fastest, <laughs> so. and you also wrote about that. That if you do it that way, then if you if you get that relief from that really terrible incident, then it's going to generalize to a bunch of other incidents that are less severe. Um, so you know that it's a lo- it's a lot. Maybe that's why it's 13 weeks instead of much longer is that you're going right at the hardest stuff once somebody's ready yep Um, so look thank you so much for talking um with me and um and we'll you know we'll pick up next week we'll both get a chance to think about this and check in and see where we want to go and i want to invite anybody who's listening if you want to email anything to me you can Uh, go to my website and you can email me through there. Any questions you want us to cover or any observations about what we've said? And also, you could, I think, though I don't want to have you flooded, so I should have asked you first, Melanie, if people can email you. Yeah, absolutely, they can.
1: They can find me through my website also.
0: Okay, good. All right, well, we'll be on next week and we'll continue with this. So thanks and goodbye, everybody. Great, thanks,
1: Charlie. Okay,
0: take care. Bye.
1: Bye.